Let me ask you a question. And as I was thinking about this this morning, as we jump into, we're going to jump into Jonah chapter 2. So if you want to dodge my question, you can start flipping in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. But when you start to have trouble with something, when something is hard, what do you tend to do? When, when, you, when you just can't seem to get something right, what's your, what's your natural tendency? Kind of the, the third way to ask the same question, if you don't like something about yourself, what do you try to do? Well, for me, often the case, and I suspect, I, maybe I'm alone in this, but I suspect I'm not alone in this, I try to work harder. You know, put, put the nose to the grindstone a little bit. Try harder. Chase the guys on the bike down the hills. Eventually, I'm going to get there and not crash and have the scrapes where my kids tell me for the next week, hey, you got in a fight with a bush on Monday, did you? Yes, I did. Maybe you just pay someone to do the work for you, or maybe you just try to push through in, with, with all the energy you can. Well, this morning, as we continue our series in Jonah, we're going to find Jonah in a tight spot, literally. We're picking up the story, and he's in the belly of the great fish, and he starts to pray. In just a moment, I will read Jonah chapter 2 for us, but I, I do want to kind of ask one more question and have it roll around in our minds, because sometimes some of these, these words or or things we do at church, or even spiritual disciplines, we have this kind of idea that we think we know what they are, but maybe we need a refresher, let's say. And so the question, as we start in Jonah chapter 2, it says, and Jonah prayed. The question is this, what is prayer? And I bring this up because, again, I think there's a lot of ideas, both inside and outside of the church, of what prayer might be. Uh, some examples might be it's, it's what we do after the music and before we send the kids out of church. That's prayer. That's, that's it. Uh, some might say, you know, prayer is actually just um, putting positive thoughts and energy out into the universe and kind of hoping for the best or trusting that that positive energy uh, will change your circumstance into the future. Maybe we think prayer is, is thanking God for meals and Sometimes as parents of young children, thanking God it's bedtime. Maybe it's a, a meeting that happens sometimes at church. But a couple of things I want to remind us of or challenge us of or, or encourage us to start thinking around it or try to interacting with ourselves is, is how do we think of prayer? And primarily, and I'm still working on this, don't hear me say any of this as an expert, but as one who's still learning, Prayer is communion with God. It is, it is communing, it is engaging in community with God. There's a, a preacher in Scotland named William Still who had a, a, a lovely piece on this. I'm going to quote from him a little bit heavily in the next little bit here. He says this, that prayer for the Christian is a matter of believing that God is and that he does respond to those who believe in him. Prayer for the Christian is a matter of believing that God is and that God does respond when we ask him things. Now, it's important to note that our belief doesn't make him real. We're not just kind of conjuring up a God that we then offer up our prayers to. We want to, it's, a, it's a way to remind ourselves of, no, no, God is real. He wants to hear from me. And so we're going to chat. 
And I know that sometimes this is really hard when we have prayers that we have offered again and again and again and again and again, and they just don't seem to be heard. The prayer for the Christian is a matter of believing that God is and that he does respond to those who believe in him. Still continues and, and says, now the, the real Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. We get the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God and is naturally therefore in vital touch with the Father and the Son. On the basis that we know something about this God from the, the scriptures, we begin to speak to him internally and should do so naturally in the sense as we speak to ourselves, to our, our better selves, the selves that are born of God in Christ Jesus. That's prayer. But we have to believe that he's there and that he's listening. A little bit later, he says that prayer becomes a lifestyle. It becomes such a vital part of life that it refocuses our entire outlook. And this becomes so positive and creative that it lifts our spirit far beyond any doubt or depression or, or pessimistic attitudes. One of the things that such an attitude of prayer does is free our minds from the narrowness of thinking God as simply the supplier of our needs. That comes into it very much indeed, but, but God is so much more than that. The last thing I'll say is, is that still says, we become, as we pray, we become interested in him. In the same way you become interested in someone that you start to establish ongoing conversations. Says, we become interested in him, in his ways, in his doings, in his words. And, and over time, we start to, to, to build a new character because we're being shaped more and more like him. We're being affected by our conversations and discussions with him. We start to see his point of view better and agree with him perhaps about a great many things we were tempted not to agree about before. And the very humility which unselfconsciously comes with such an attitude as one of sheer delight. The thing that stood out for me, and probably that, that whole thing, is that we become interested in him. Now, if you picked up a new hobby or a new interest, let's say Formula One, car racing, for instance, hypothetically, as you start to, to you know, gain an interest in, you know, the, the technical aspect of the car, the speed of the car, the, the, the personality of the racers, you, you, you start to, you know, maybe watch a few YouTube videos, read a few articles, catch the highlights from Montreal later this afternoon as they're racing right about now, actually. And you start to get an understanding. You start to feel like, I feel like I even know these drivers, right? I know that, that Charles is going to complain about Ferrari because he didn't qualify high enough. I know that Max is just going to coast through and say, great job, everybody. And all these things, when you become interested in something, we grow closer and closer to it. We have a deeper understanding. We have a, a longing to know more about that thing. And that's what prayer does for us. The more we engage in it, the more we interact with God through reading his scriptures, through, through speaking to him and, and, and expecting to hear from him, we grow closer and closer. Let me read our text for us. Jonah, uh, right at the end of chapter 1 and into verse, chapter 2. So the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. He says, I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol, and you heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the hearts of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and billows swept over me. But I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. 
The water engulfed me up to the neck, and the watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth gate shut behind me forever. And then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. One of the central themes of this book, of the book of Jonah, is the relentless love of God. Time and time again, as we read, even just four short chapters, we read this, we see God's grace towards every character in this story, not just Jonah, who should know about God's grace, but definitely needs a refresher. But God's grace is shown everywhere. So the question for us is, how do we see God's grace? Where, where do we find it? Well, our section this morning opens up with the last verse of chapter 1, where, where we've seen that God has appointed or arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah. If you remember from chapter 1, uh, Jonah ran away from what God was doing. Instead of going uh, north and east up to Nineveh, he went south and west down to Joppa, hopped on a boat to try to go as far as away from God as he could. And while that boat was on the sea, the Lord appointed or threw a great storm in the way to, to act as a, a discipline, basically, for Jonah. And ultimately, Jonah said, you know what, guys, in order to, to, to rescue yourselves to the sailors, he said, to rescue yourselves from the storm, throw me overboard, which he knew and the sailors knew as soon as Jonah hit the water, he was done for. He was dead. And so we even see God's grace in him appointing or arranging a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And we'll see this, this verb, this action again and again. In each case, uh, God orchestrates something in history so that Jonah would learn something he desperately needed to know. I don't know about you, but when I look back on my life, some of the most important lessons that I learned, I couldn't learn them until I was in some of the hardest times of my life. Often in the moment, it's really hard to see what God is doing through uh, what one writer calls his severe mercy. I'm not sure Jonah knew what God was trying to do when he hit the water and started to sink. And I don't know if he saw that gaping mouth coming for him. I don't know if he knew what God was going to try to do there. But sometimes with the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and say, oh no, God was, was using that for my good. I needed that correction. I needed that severe mercy even at times. And yes, in Jonah's case, the fish saved him from the sea, but he still tells us that he was sinking into the heart of the sea in verse 3 and, and to the roots of the mountains in verse 5. He isn't safe yet. Peter Craigie writes that when we reject and disobey God like Jonah did, it can take sometimes a radical treatment if that rejection and disobedience is to be remedied. And we can look at the story of Jonah and see how far he's been sinking so far in this book. First, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, no, he went down to Joppa instead of up to Nineveh. Then he got on the boat and he went down into the ship. And then he went down deeper into the lowest part of the ship. And now he's going down to the depths of the ocean. 
Craigie says it wasn't until he was all the way down, finally stripped of his own buoyant self-sufficiency, was deliverance possible. Sometimes you and I are exactly there. No, no, it's okay. I've got a plan for this. I know this is hard. I know God, maybe God wants to teach you something, but I'm, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to figure this out. And sometimes we need to be stripped of our own buoyant self-sufficiency so God can deliver us. And this was really Jonah's fatal flaw, and I dare say that many of us struggle with this too. That when things are going well, we think we're pretty well off. We're pretty self-sufficient. I can do it myself. Sure, there's a couple bumps in the road, but we can just bump through those things. And effectively, what we're saying is, God, I don't really need you. Thanks for offering. I've got this myself. And as long as Jonah felt like he was in control, no, I'm, go I'm going down instead of up. I'm going to hop on the boat instead of head across land. As long as he felt like he was in control, this flaw wouldn't be exposed or dealt with. He just kept living it out. And it took coming to the end of himself for God to work. A little while ago, some of these, you know, it seems like time keeps flying. <clears throat> In 2008, which is now a long time ago, uh, J.K. Rowling spoke at Harvard's commencement speech. I don't know if any of you remember that or happened to catch it or saw clips of it. And during her speech, she described uh, a point during her life where she uh, said, she says, that she had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded. I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being hopeless, homeless. Excuse me. But then she added that I began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one area, which is writing for her, that I believe I truly belong. She, of course, went on to write the Harry Potter series, one of the best-selling book series since, for sure. But her success was built on her failure. And she, she recognizes that. If, if, I, if I just cruised through life, I never would have succeeded in this way. We have lots of other examples of this in the Bible, too. Consider Jacob. He wasn't prepared to lead the family of God until he was forced to leave his home, experienced many years of mistreatment by his father-in-law, faced what he assumed would be a violent encounter when he got back in touch with his brother Esau. And only after all that did he meet God face to face in Genesis 32. Consider Abraham, or Joseph, or David, or Moses, or Elijah, or Peter, or Paul. All of these guys become, the, the reason we remember them happened after they'd gone through failure and suffering. It was not all roses. As it's often said, you, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Let's look at Jonah's prayer a little bit. Now, we're not told at one, what point of time during his uh, time inside the fish that he started praying. I don't know if it would have been pretty quick or just kind of waited for a while to see what was going to happen. As, but as he recounts this prayer, as we have written for us, which is, which is filled with language from the Psalms, by the way, we can tell that he hit rock bottom. He tells us in verse 2, I cried out for help from the deep. Verse 3, that the, the current overcame me. There was nothing I could do to fight against it. 
Verse 4, I've been, been banished from your sight, Lord God. The watery depth overcame me. Verse 6, I sank to the foundations of the mountains, and the earth's gate shut behind me forever. He knows, he knows he's sunk. He knows he's as far from God as is possible, and, and, and he cannot get back. It's interesting for, for a book where, where it's really like fast-paced and, and actions going on and on, and really quick, chapter one, it just makes your head spin if you think about all that happens. Chapter two is almost just a stop. And we're kind of stuck in the darkness, in the quiet with Jonah, and only Jonah, and his God. Then we get to verse 6, second half, and he says, But you, O Lord my God, have snatched me from the jaws of death. He continues, it says, As, as my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. The, the crux of this prayer, the kind of the final hit of this prayer, is that Jonah finally comes to realize and remember the steadfast love or the grace of the Lord. It takes the whole prayer for Jonah to get himself there and finally remind himself of the Lord's faithful covenant love and declare God's grace. And, but when he does, when he finally gets there, he's released, which is a nicer word than vomited, back into the land of the living. So what is God's grace? That's where we want to kind of camp this morning. What is God's grace? J.I. Packer has a little book called Knowing God, and, and he observes in this book that lots of people talk about God's grace as though they understand that, okay, God is gracious. That means something. I should, I should know that if I follow him. But it's one of those things that you just can't put in a jar or you can't wrap our minds around. We talk about God's grace as if it's abstract, but not a life-changing power. And he would go on in that book to describe that there, there are several truths about God's grace that we need to know, and we need to uh, not just acknowledge with our minds, but allow them to, to sink into our hearts so that we can understand God's grace. And, and Jonah experiences these. The first is what Packer calls our moral ill desert, that we're morally wrong, that we are sinful. And this is one that's hard for our culture to hear, isn't it? Nobody, nobody's allowed to tell me that I'm wrong. We, we live in a day where our culture tells us that our, our problem is, is probably just a lack of self-esteem. Just think better of yourself. Be, be more positive, right? We've got the power of positive thinking. We've got that, that put good things into the universe, and the universe will give you good things back. We live in a culture where moral standards are, are solely, uh, we, we say, they are just societal and cultural. So who is this culture to tell me what's right or wrong? We can decide that for ourselves. And no one has the right to make me feel guilty. And yet we also live in a culture where anxiety, depression, and all kinds of mental health challenges are through the roof, no matter how many bell let's talk days we have, no matter how much we talk about these things, we're not fixing anything, it seems. But the Bible comes out and consistently tells us the problem is actually that you are a sinner, that you have broken some laws of the universe, that you have offended the God that created the universe. And our culture says, actually, that's, that, that's oppressive, that's dangerous, that's even evil to talk like that. But Jonah knows. 
In his prayer, he recognizes, God, you threw me into the depths. You threw me into the hearts of the sea. He knows knows that there was such a thing as divine justice, and he knows that he deserves it. The first thing we need to understand when we talk about God's grace is our moral ill-desert, that we have sinned against God. The second thing we need to understand is what Packer calls our spiritual impotence. So in order to understand God's grace, not only do we need to recognize that we, we have sinned, but also that we can't fix ourselves. Again, culture doesn't help us here. Our culture believes that there is no problem that humanity might face that we can't solve through progress or technology or therapy, none of which are bad things in and of themselves. Don't hear me say that. But we as humanity have said, no, we will fix it. And again, the Bible says, ah, that's not how this works. Even within religious circles, even within the church, we can believe, hey, if I just work hard enough, if I just do enough good, if I, if I sign up for everything on this sheet, take the whole week of all the things, then God will be so happy with me, so pleased with me that he'll have to do what I want and make things better. The, uh, the idea that we can fix ourselves was alive and well in Jonah's day too. But again, in verse 6, he, he rejects it. He recognizes as he sinks to the bottom of the earth that he stands condemned for his own sin and there's no possible way for him to open up those gates of the earth that keep him from the Lord. See, the doctrine of God's grace, our, our understanding of God's grace only resonates with us if we admit that we actually cannot save ourselves. The third truth we have to grasp about God's grace is that that it really costs him something. If we don't grasp the cost of, cost of grace, what it costs God, then it won't really transform us. Twice in, in Jonah's prayer, he says he looks towards the temple as he prays in verse 4 and in verse 7. See, Jonah knew that the temple was where the mercy seat of God was. Jonah knew that, that there was this spot in the middle of the temple where God lived, and, and within the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And within the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, sealed by, by a slab of gold on top of it, protected by two angels, and that was called the Mercy Seat. And on, on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the, the high priest would go in and would sprinkle blood, paying for the, the, the sins of the people because an animal had died. I don't know if you, you can picture this. It's It's tricky. But we've got this sense of, again, the, the temple is where God dwelt with his people. And if you, you wanted to, to worship, you went there to, to be with him. And in the center of the temple was, was God's perfect moral righteousness, represented by the Ten Commandments, which no human has ever been able to keep. How can we approach a God like that? Since We don't have to get too far in that list of ten to realize we're guilty. But then there's the mercy seat. It was a thing that shielded the people from God's holiness, if you will, in the Ten Commandments. It was that that protection. It's where where the the blood sacrifice went. No, we're guilty, but blood has been shed on our behalf. All of this is, is all Old Testament understanding. In Jonah's day, neither Jonah nor any other Israelite 
could picture fully what this meant. But when Jesus came, the picture became clear. The, the whole sacrificial system and the whole Old Testament established these three truths we've just talked about, that, that we are sinners, that we're unable to save ourselves, and we can only be saved through extreme and costly measures by the death of another. And it would take a few centuries after Jonah's time when we would come to realize that full atonement wasn't possible through the blood of, of bulls or goats, but only through the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. If you want to flip through to Hebrews chapter 10, there's a couple spots there where, where we read in, in Hebrews 10 that it is impossible, in verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was just a symbol. It was a, it was a, a hint. It was a foreshadowing of something to come. And then down in verse 9 and 10, read the, then Jesus says, See, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first. That's that first system, that Old Testament system, to establish the second. By this will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. The writer continues and says, Every priest stands day by day ministering and offering these same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, but Jesus, offering one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Tim Keller concludes, Many people sing the song Amazing Grace and give lip service to that idea. But that grace hasn't profoundly changed them. It says God's grace becomes wondrous and, and endlessly consoling and beautiful and humbling only when we fully believe and grasp and remind ourselves all three of these background truths, that we deserve nothing but condemnation, that we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves, and that God has saved us despite our sin at an infinite cost to himself. Some people, he would go on to say, have too high a view of themselves. That one, I read that one, that one stung a little bit. God's grace isn't stunning because they don't feel they need it, or at least not so much. Others do indeed see themselves as failures, but while they may have some notion of an abstract God of love, they have little idea of the enormity of Jesus' sacrifice to purchase them out of the debt, slavery, and death because of sin. And they're not lost in wonder. Often, the, the reason we find grace when we're in the valleys and not on a high, high point is because we need to be reminded of these things. No one grasps their sinfulness by somebody else just yelling at them. Oh, you're wrong. One writer says, our, our heart's sinfulness, it actually has to be shown to us. We have to actually see that, that we're sinful, that we can't save ourselves, but that Jesus did it all. Jonah gets this. He gets it too. He recognizes, again, the earth's gates have shut behind me forever. But his very next statement is just the gospel, really. But you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. He understands that he is lost, condemned, and unable to unlock the doors of the prison he's made for himself, and yet God saves him. And look what he does when he, he gets this. He starts to worship. Remember where he is. He's not out of the woods, not in the woods. He's not out of the belly yet, but he worships. And he thanks God for being righteous. And he thanks God for keeping his promises. And he thanks God 
for his grace. And it's only after Jonah realizes the grace of God in his prayer and cries out that salvation, rescue from all of these things, belongs to the Lord that his circumstances change. Sometimes uh, we get stuck into thinking, in, into the kind of thinking that just puts God into a lamp, as, as kind of the genie in the lamp. Right? Well, if God shows up, then I'll believe in him. But if we're learning from Jonah, he's been piecing together this understanding of God's grace, which he probably was taught growing up. He probably understood if he's God's prophet, he knew these things, but he's putting them into place and and he's not in a good spot, right? He's, he's in the digestive tract of a fish. And he exclaims, my salvation, my rescue comes from the Lord. Some, of that, some have said that this one verse in the middle of this short little book in the Minor Prophets summarizes the whole Bible. Or at least is the most succinct summary of the scriptures. The end of verse 9 there. Salvation belongs to the Lord. See, the rescue we need from our sin comes from God alone, not from anywhere else. It's not as though God plays his part and, and only when we do our work too that it happens. No, nothing we can do saves ourselves. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the entire message of the Bible. And if we keep on reading, and we will keep on reading in coming weeks, we'll soon see that Jonah, even though he just made this brilliant declaration, he just summed up the entire Bible in, what's that, seven, eight words, he still has some learning to do. He still has this sense of his own superiority, of his own self-righteousness that needs to overcome. He sees the idols. He talks about idols in verse 8. He sees the idols that the sailors had on the boat, and he's going to go and see the idols of Nineveh but he misses the idols in his own heart. I can tell you, I take some hope in this because Jonah isn't perfect. He doesn't have it all figured out. And yet God in his mercy patiently works through him, flawed as Jonah is. Let me pray. God, thank you again for this morning, for this text. Thank you that you are a patient God with us. Thank you that your love for us is relentless. Thank you that even as you, as you discipline, the goal is not to drive us away from you or as though you get some sort of pleasure out of punishment, but rather you discipline to show us the consequences of our actions and our decisions and our, uh, the way that we've been living. But the goal is to draw us back to you. The goal is to, to welcome us back into your family. The goal is to, to help us to flourish in all that we are. And so God, I, I pray that you would help us grasp your grace this morning. That we would understand that, that the gospel says that we are all sinners, no matter what the world around us says. And that we cannot save ourselves but God, you sent Jesus to rescue us. We thank you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.